0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Oyster and the Pearl. It's been a little bit of time since we have done one, and this is officially our first Oyster and Pearl under COVID land. So I have a guest here with me. His name is Rob Cooney. Say hi, Rob.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: All right. Very good. And Rob, I'm going to butcher your new title. So do you mind telling everybody what your new job is?
1: So I am the Director of Faculty Development for Geisinger Healthcare System. So it is a GME-level position, not just emergency medicine.
0: Fantastic. And you used to be the program director, correct, at Geisinger for emergency medicine. That is correct. All right. Awesome. So Rob and I met uh, literally in an airport in Toronto. We were confused as to where we were going, and we turned to each other to make sure we were in the right place, and uh, we started talking. It turns out we had the same job, and not only that, we lived in the same state, and so be it, and here, here we are. And that conference was the ICRE conference, which is the International Conference on Residency Education, which is my favorite conference to go to all year, so...
1: It is one of the best, and if you haven't gone, I highly recommend it.
0: Yes, and, and you can create these like like long friendships like Rob and I have had now. And now here we are on this podcast, which is fantastic. So Rob and I have been thinking for a long time about what we could potentially do as a faculty development topic that would work for all of our faculty, ours and his, particularly with his new role. And we both are very passionate about this thing called competency-based medical education. And I think a lot of people talk and use the word competency-based medical education. And there's a lot of confusion about what it actually means. And it's different than time-based medical education, which is what we are traditionally very used to. And so Rob and I just wanted to take about 10, 15 minutes or so to introduce what competency-based medical education is and talk about how it's different than what we've traditionally done. So Rob, how did you first kind of become passionate about competency-based medical education?
1: So it was actually through CORD, and it was the year that they were introducing the next accreditation system. I was still a junior faculty member at the time, and we had Tom Naska, who's the president of the ACGME, as one of our keynote speakers to introduce the change. And I remember being kind of floored by his presentation. You know, I thought we were doing a pretty decent job at med ed, and... I understood why, or at least I thought I understood why, we were going to this new next accreditation system, just building upon the previous core competencies that they had created. But then he started showing some of the patient safety data. And I kind of had a patient safety feather in my cap at the time. And I remember one particular article that he shared with us on the temporal trends in harm reduction in North Carolina that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I remember reading that article and thinking to myself, you know, I think part of the reason it shows that we haven't made any change in safety is we're just getting better at capturing the incidents. But he took a completely different approach to it. And he looked at it as if a physician's trajectory over a career is about 30 years, a 10-year study should have led to turnover of about 30% of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they didn't make a single dent in any of the harm measures indicated to him that we weren't educating residents and medical students to come out, enter practice, and be able to make the changes necessary to provide safer and better care for our patients. And so that kind of was one of those light bulb moments to me that made me realize we definitely need to take this seriously and critically evaluate how we're teaching and make the changes necessary to accomplish those aims
0: yeah and i think if you think about prior to the next accreditation system which is quite some time ago now uh i think we just assumed that and it does happen that residents just kind of learn and that they progress through residency and that there's a natural time course to what that they what they do and i can't say that we weren't paying attention but ninety five percent of our residents just kind of progress on this timeline, and they do fine. And I think we thought that that was probably okay. And that's how you trained, and that's how I trained, and so and that's how the vast majority of us trained. And so, trying to see that it could be different or that it needed to be different is sometimes um, hard because we've never seen it done any different, and it's not how we trained.
1: And even the you know initial core competencies list, they expanded it from the two that we still mostly evaluate patient care and medical knowledge. And they added these four other sub-competencies. We're still trying to figure out how best do we evaluate and rate our residents. And we're still struggling with that now, almost eight years later after we've started the next accreditation system.
0: And maybe before we even talk about what's going on in the world, we should probably actually define what competency-based medical education is. And the difference is, so we've alluded to it, that time-based medical education is what we have all been subject to in our lives. And that was, you entered residency, and in June of your PGY1 year, uh, you met with your program director who rubber-stamped you to go on to your second year, and then rubber-stamped you to go to your third year, and uh, maybe to your fourth year if you were in a four-year program. And that was it. And when people struggled, we, uh, you know, kind of, tried to figure out systems to help those that struggled, but even if they were struggling, they still, the vast majority of residents still progressed on to their subsequent year of training. And that is kind of typical, time-based training and then there's this whole new realm of what's considered competency-based education and it's not time-based it's de-linked to time and it's 100 percent exactly what it sounds like it's it surrounds around your competencies and so you could in theory have a resident who comes in who's maybe worked in a clinical setting for 10 years and has a lot of the basic competencies already met because of their prior experience, and they might blow through all of the predetermined competencies for a PGY1 resident. And in December of their PGY1 year, they could be looking at advancing onto a PGY2 skill set, which is very different than what is currently done in the States. Um, Do you have anything to add to that?
1: The only thing to add is that I think there's a lot of fear amongst programs when they look at some of these competencies that, oh my gosh, I'm going to graduate graduating all of these people early. And I think the data doesn't suggest that that's going to be the case. Some of the early data out of Canada seems to suggest that the time that we give them right now actually is about right for the attainment of competency for a majority of the residents. There's about 15% who may progress faster, but the flip side is also true, that there's about 15% that take longer than the rest of the cohort to become competent.
0: And the cornerstone of competency-based medical education really lies in assessment and feedback. So it's this idea of continuously assessing your learner and getting a gauge for not only what skill sets they might be lacking, but what skill sets they are doing really well and have attained mastery or at least um, some level of competence in. And moving on and not continuing to harp on those skill sets if they've already mastered them. They might continue to refine them along the way. I feel like that's probably something that we've not done very well. We assess our struggling learners really well, but we don't always assess and prove that our learners that are on the correct pathway, we don't always prove that they are on the correct pathway.
1: Even on the converse side, the autonomous resident. Unfortunately, there are regulations that forbid residents from being able to act in a completely autonomous fashion and do things without us being present. But ultimately, that's the only way that we can trust them, that they're going to be able to do that on July 1st of the year they graduate, when suddenly we're no longer standing beside them. And I do think that we do a reasonable job of kind of taking that step back to the the doorway and allowing the residents a lot more autonomy. But ultimately, it's about what are they going to do when we're not there with them? And can we trust them to be able to carry on all of the tasks that are essential for the profession?
0: And I think, you know, for people that have been doing this a long time, the sense is, yeah, like we graduate residents that can do all of that. Uh, But the question is, if somebody asked you, it's kind of like pornography, you know it when you see it, but could you define it? That's where I find the hardest thing about competency-based medical education is really knowing and defining Task.
1: Which is, I think, why we're starting to see the rise of entrustment and entrustable professional activities, because they're trying to operationalize all of these competencies and milestones and some of these other terms we should probably define. Yeah. <laughs> so it's
0: like, was like, this topic is just like, it's like unwinding the yarn, And like, the more you get into this, the more you get into this. So for people that don't even know what milestones are, because if you're not in programmatic leadership, you might not know what milestones are. Um, so milestones was the United States and the ACGME and the RRC's attempts at, or their, the structure that they put around um, to trying to define these competencies of, of, I think, I don't even know how many there are in emergency medicine. Uh, I'm horrible. 23 or something like that. Um, Thank you. Gosh, I feel better. Um, 23 (laughs) competencies that we have determined as a specialty that our residents need to be competent at. And then they're leveled one through five. They're different for every specialty. Like medicine has just a very large number of milestones um, and surgery has a different level. So every specialty has done it a little bit different, but some people kind of took these milestones and decided to make EPAs out of them. So can you kind of talk about what EPAs are?
1: So EPAs are entrustable professional activities and they are a methodology to try and operationalize milestones a little bit better and really the question comes down to Can I trust the resident to be able to perform this task independent of my supervision? So again going back to resident autonomy, it is something that they will do without you needing to remind them or supervise them to be able to do it. When you look at it from the journal definition, it's an essential task of a discipline that a learner can be trusted to perform without direct supervision, and an individual entering practice can perform unsupervised in a given healthcare context once sufficient competence has been demonstrated. So it takes that competence and rolls it into task performance.
0: That was a lot of fancy language there that you threw in. It is a lot
1: of fancy language. So comparing milestones, so a milestone is an ability of a healthcare professional at a stage of development. So it's that stake in the road that, you know, when you get to this stage of training, you should be able to do this level of activity competently, whereas the EPA is that key task of a discipline that you need to be able to perform, and some of those you'll be performing as a resident. But ultimately, they're what we perform as practicing clinicians. They are all of the tasks of the discipline. And entrustable professional activity will involve multiple competencies, and multiple competencies will show up within the EPAs too.
0: What do you think if you're like a frontline person who's working with the residents day in and day out, what do you think they need to understand?
1: So I think one of the first things is they need to go watch the residents. Too often, we sit at the desk and we allow the residents to go off and see the patients unsupervised and then they come back and they give us a presentation and we ask them some questions around the presentation and it's really focused on the the medical knowledge side of things so getting to what they know and don't know and we miss the opportunity to actually go out and witness the communication and the professionalism and some of the other things unless there's a problem Mm-hmm. Right, and so when there's a problem, then okay, we'll go watch a little bit more often. But ultimately, the first thing we need to do is to do more direct observation. If we just did that one thing, this would make a lot more sense because you'd be able to pick apart where the residents are kind of hiding their incompetence.
0: Yeah, I can't. And if you've listened to this before, we've talked about this so many times when we talk about feedback, the cornerstone of feedback is you have to watch them do it, right? When you have a coach of a football team and they're playing the game, the coach is not up in the owner's box, like far, far away. The coach is on the field, watching the people do the things and then giving them direct feedback about it. And for some reason in medicine, well, and I get it. It's the way everything has evolved in our workflow and all of the different competing demands on our time why it has evolved this way but it's very difficult to appropriately assess or even coach a resident if you are not watching them do the thing
1: and then it's learning what to watch for and this is the more difficult part of the the direct observation because we all have our own lived experiences and our own preferences and beliefs about what should be happening and so it's probably worth taking a couple of faculty meetings to discuss you know when a resident at this level is doing this task, what do we expect out of it? You know, there's always gonna be the hawk and dumb effect, and that's okay, because with the law of averages, things will average out if you have a lot of observations. But having some degree of agreement on what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, if you are you know, a frontline faculty listening to this, think about the thing that you are good at, or the thing that you really like to assess, and just get really good at assessing that.
1: And one of the other things to think about is almost taking the the stopwatch approach of what you're looking at. And this was something that I learned from a physician coach or an educator coach. And they had this whole checklist of behaviors they were watching their faculty for. And I looked at the list and was kind of blown away by the number of things. And I asked them, how can you watch for all these things at one time? And they said, well, we don't. We just take a minute and we watch for this one thing. And then we switch in a minute and we watch for this other thing. So all of those things, piece by piece, you can break down the account a little bit more easily.
0: So I kind of want to talk a little bit about what they do in other countries, although I know that we're kind of hoping to have a second podcast and maybe get Jason Frank on to talk about what they're doing in Canada, particularly in emergency medicine. Uh, do you want to talk about here here? You want to wait and see if we can get Jason?
1: I think we should wait on that one because if we can't get Jason, I'm sure we can get I- Teresa or Jonathan. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we get one of the three superstars and learn about CBME in Canada because they have completely gone all in this year and you know, moving to a completely time-independent, competency-based model, which uh, the ACGME, I have been told, is paying very close attention to. So...
0: Yeah. And so are we. As you know, we've been following them like hawks for the last couple of years. And we've been putting all of our building blocks in place. And the question I get asked the most often is, is the ACGME really going to ever let us go non-time-based to competency-based? <laughs> and I don't ever have a good answer for them. But I always think, well, but Canada's doing it before us. so Maybe we'll have a yeah. better sense. Yeah.
1: But it's not just the ACGME. So in order to do this, the American Board of Emergency Medicine would have to revise its standards on how many months of training must be completed to be considered competent in emergency medicine. So it will require a complete shift from undergraduate through graduate and even practicing physicians. So we've got a lot of work to do before we ever get there in this There's a lot of
0: work to do. There's so much work to do. So, all right, so we'll table that conversation and we'll just cross our fingers that, that one of them likes you enough to come on my lovely little podcast here. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm confident, actually, that you have the pull and the charm to make it happen. Uh, is there anything else that you feel like – the world, your people, my people, the emergency medicine community, the medicine community at large should know about competency-based medical education before we wrap it up.
1: The last thing to think about with this is the role that the data plays in creating an assessment system or what they consider programmatic assessment. And I think we can probably do another whole podcast on this topic, but as you sit down and you start discussing competency-based education with your faculty, it's a great time to look at the assessments that you're using. How well are we assessing each one? Is it really just when you sit in front of your competency committee and say, yep, they're good? Or do you actually have objective proof that the resident is able to do what you think they're able to do?
0: By far the hardest thing. Absolutely, by far. I think that that is where programs, if this ever comes to fruition in the United States, and again, this is what I'd love to talk about uh, with the other folks up in Canada. Like that, to me, seems like one. Having done this now for a couple of years and continuing to redefine and revise what we're doing and doing more faculty development around it, it's taken us years, and we still have a long way to go. And so, I um, I think it's all nice to talk about, but The actual implementation is really stinking hard.
1: The other thing I'd like to put in a plug for is narrative comments. When you're looking at your assessments that you're using at the point of care, you know, when the milestones first came out, we designed all of these milestone cards where people got to check what level the resident was performing and all tanked. None of them worked. So I think... Having gone through some of this, the most helpful thing is the narrative that the faculty can provide on what the resident did or is doing, because then you can actually map those behaviors over time to see the improvement or the lack of improvement.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And if you don't really know how to write good narrative comments or want to know where to start, I actually have two podcasts on it. Um, It's the Rhyme Framework with Lynn Byers. There's two of them. One introduces the Rhyme Framework and one talks about how to actually write down narrative comments that are useful to programs for making assessment and promotion decisions. I would agree that the narrative comments are of utmost importance. It's really hard to put in narrative comments when you haven't trained your faculty, though, because garbage in is garbage out and they're well-meaning people. But if they have not been trained uh, how to give you appropriate comments, it's very scary to let go of those numbers and those milestones.
1: And I think it's helpful from a program leadership standpoint to think about how you can prime the faculty to collect those comments for you.
0: All right. Well, Rob, in the interest of time, I'm going to call this a day and we thank everybody for joining us and listening to us babble on here about competency-based medical education. Rob and I could talk about this all day long and sometimes do talk about this all day long. And we are looking forward to a few more podcasts that will be in this vein. And uh, so if you have any comments or questions or anything that you want to hear more of, just let us know. So thanks everyone. And we'll talk to you later.